So, Jay, Joseph is a clone of Magneto, right? Right, Miles. A clone of Magneto who thinks he is Magneto. Sometimes. Later on, he mostly lies about being Magneto. In all fairness, I also lie about being Magneto. Yeah, but you don't do it to start mutant supremacist groups under false pretenses. Of course not. That would be a dick move. Correct. And you know what else? Juggernaut agrees with you. When he found out that the group's purpose wasn't to protect mutants, he attacked Joseph and... Killed him? Held him down so Cyclops could lecture him. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 302 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. I think I'm not going to get used to our episode number starting with three until right before they start starting with four. I mean, you're telling me. I'm the one who's got to say them. <laughs> Fair point. Well, here we are. We are done with the Age of Apocalypse. We covered X-Men Prime, which led us gently back into Earth-616. So today is going to be our first actual post-AOA Earth-616 continuity resumes as roughly normal story. Roughly normal is, is maybe a bit generous considering what this starts. Okay, yes. I mean, we've mentioned it before, we'll mention it again, and then we'll be stuck in it for the rest of our lives. As the covers of so many comics said during this era, Onslaught is coming. Jay, have we actually specifically talked about what the big Onslaught event is? Like, I know we've alluded to it a million times, but it occurs to me we may have listeners who are not familiar. We definitely did a live cold open about it at one point. Oh yeah, I remember that one. But yeah, the short version is the big summer, I don't know if it was summer, crossover that Marvel did in the latter half of the mid-90s, around 97, I think, was Onslaught. The entire freaking Marvel Universe crossed over, it was this great big event, it kind of made no sense, and uh, then it was over. And they are planting the seeds for Onslaught left and right in this era. Uh, not in this episode specifically, but uh, almost every other episode we're going to be covering for a while, there's going to be at least some little hint of Onslaught. I mean, we have some foundation laid here. We've definitely got pieces that connect back to Uncanny X-Men 322, where we see some of that stuff a little bit more vis viscerally, but there's stuff that's going to happen in the issues that we talk about today that's definitely happening in connection to, or as a result of, or directly done by Onslaught. That is true, yeah. And actually, you mentioning Uncanny X-Men 322 reminds me of something that I thought we should talk about, which is that at this point, X-Men and Uncanny X-Men... They're written by different creative teams, they tend to have their own little stories, but they're essentially the same larger book. We see the same characters going back and forth between the different books, we see the same events mentioned constantly from one to the other. We're sort of playing with the best way to deal with that fact. For right now, we're going to cover Uncanny and Adjectiveless separately, but there may come a time where we just start mixing them together like they're one title. I really hate that they do that. I feel like if you have separate titles they should function separately. You should not have to subscribe to both of them in the normal course of events to follow the events in either one. I think you may be implying, Jay, that perhaps Marvel made some missteps in the mid to late 1990s. I guess a little bit before they went bankrupt, huh? How about that? <laughs> yeah. But that said, there's a lot of good stuff in this era in addition to the questionable stuff, and I, being me, of course, would like to focus on the good stuff while still making fun of the bad stuff. Works for me. Okay, so it's been a long time since we've been in 616. X-Men Prime let us back in, but let's talk a little bit about what leads us into this story. Let us talk about what happened. Previously on X-Men. In the early 90s, leading up to the Age of Apocalypse, the X-Men's on-again, off-again nemesis Magneto decided that he was sick of everyone's bullshit, so he did what any reasonable master of magnetism would do. He grew a mullet and moved to space. Unfortunately, 
Not all of everyone got the message that, you know, what he wanted to was basically be left alone, and a group of mutants who pretty much saw Magneto as a messiah figure, or at least a prophet, sought him out and started a cult. They called themselves the Acolytes, and by generally being jerks, managed to draw Magneto into a war with the humans of Earth. Uncool Acolytes. Right? Magneto seemed to die at the end of this conflict, but this is the Marvel Universe, and so... It wasn't too long before he showed up alive and well again. There's a reason they call that move pulling a Magneto. This time he wanted to invite the mutants of the world to give the finger to Earth's bigotry and join him back up in space. That actually sounds great. I would absolutely go live in space right now. Well, so would longtime X-Man Colossus, who had been through an almost comically horrific series of personal tragedies. He figured, I guess, that his life couldn't get any worse under Magneto's philosophy than it did under Xavier's? <laughs> that shows how much you know, Peter Rasputin. Also, the oft-kidnapped and arrested Rusty and Skids, who had been rescued by X-Factor during the team's original five X-Men lineup era, joined the Acolytes themselves. Rusty and Skids had previously been mind-controlled by Cable's erstwhile clone Strife. Magneto had freed them from Strife's control, and in their gratitude, they had gone ahead and joined the Acolytes. Everything with this whole let's-leave-the-humans-on-Earth-and-be-in-space thing went badly, though, and as the X-Men sought to stop Magneto, Magneto nearly killed Wolverine by magnetically ripping the adamantium out of Wolverine's skeleton. At a funeral. No, it was after a funeral. First he crashed a funeral, then he ripped out a guy's skeleton. Okay, good point, good point. He didn't actually do the skeleton ripping at the funeral. That would just be rude. This whole thing was the last straw for Professor Xavier, and Xavier decided to prevent Magneto from hurting anyone ever again by erasing Magneto's mind. That won't possibly have any major repercussions. With Magneto now comatose, his second-in-command Exodus took over leadership of the Acolytes, assuring them that Magneto was totally secretly telling Exodus all of his plans. Now, Exodus... Unlike his predecessor Fabian Cortez, who was definitely just manipulating Magneto, seems to genuinely and fervently believe this, and he's backed up by really excellent hair, and I think telepathy? He's, his, his powers are, are ambiguous and varied. Definitely telekinesis. We see some telepathy this time around. Who knows what we'll see next time? I don't know. Growing scales and gills. Becoming the Mariner from Waterworld. Becoming Kevin Costner. Specifically that. Anyway... For some reason, the Acolytes have all stuck around, despite the not-exactly-confidence-inspiring leadership. I mean, they have a lot of faith in, in their, their prophet figure. Guess so. So that brings us to X-Men number 42, Heaven Can Wait, which shares its title with a pretty excellent Iron Maiden song. Yay? Hell yeah, yay. I love Iron Maiden. So... We're, we're being a little bit mean about the Acolytes in this era, but I have only good things to say about the central creative team of this book, which is written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Paul Smith. Remember Paul Smith? I do! He did that excellent short run of Uncanny way back in the day, and he did Judgment War from X-Factor, which I loved, and also uh, the X-Men Alpha Flight series, I think. This is not Smith at his peak, whether that's him or an inking issue, I'm not sure, but it's it's close enough to be familiar, and I really love his art. Anyway, it's inked by Matt Ryan, colored by Kevin Somers in Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft. So, yeah, Paul Smith, dang, okay. Now, we open on, on Avalon, that is the satellite home of the Acolytes, and the Acolytes are toasting the retrieval of a mysterious mutant from space. We, the readers, are aware that this is Holocaust, fresh out of Earth-295. That, of course, is Apocalypse's very fiery, truly terrible, large adult evil son with a awful supervillain name. He made it to the main Marvel Universe when Nate Gray very wisely stabbed him with a shard of a dimension-spanning reality-warping crystal. Oh, Nate, you rascally scamp. There are so many other things you can stab people with. So many. Literally anything else would have been a better idea. I don't know if that's true. I, I'm sure that there are things that, that would, have, would have ended worse. I'm not sure what, but there are probably things. You probably shouldn't stab someone with, like, I guess mother boxes or the DC universe. Yeah, see? So, uh, this is the worst. No, actually, that would have caused more problems, because in addition to whatever dimension-hopping stuff it, it, it created, there would be trademark issues. Oh, yeah, good point. 
Exodus, on the other hand, has no idea who this dude is, and so he thinks that it's the best thing since sliced bread. Cheers, my faithful acolytes, chosen disciples of Magneto's glorious path. May this child of the stars, delivered into our fold, bring us all that we truly deserve. Well, that's portentous. A new dawn for mutant kind! Exodus is really into this, and Exodus is, is very, very much a cult leader here. While Fabian Cortez was more about Magneto's philosophy and more about the political power moves, Exodus is all about the faith end of this situation. And he's so intense about it. Like, there's this wonderful panel that just cracks me up, where he's saying some pretty reasonable-ish stuff, but his face is just contorted into this ecstasy, rage rictus thing, and his hands are in claws just raised above his head. Like, I would not want this guy as my boss. I don't think anyone would want this guy as their boss. He also, and I object to this, as he's delivering his toast, he crushes the champagne glass in his hand, and A, that's a waste of champagne, B, that's a waste of champagne glass, and C, dude, somebody's got to clean that up. Like, some acolyte's going to have to mop now, and if they walk around Avalon barefoot, they're going to cut themselves. Well, and he's on a spaceship, so, like, glass dust and shards are going to get into the fucking air system. All right, Exodus, I am not voting for you next election. There are so many reasons not to vote for Exodus next or any election. Right? You may f you you may be gratified to find that the acolytes actually share your view of Ex Exodus's leadership. Uh, several of them, in particular, are much much less enthusiastic about the current situation. It's our Colossus and Milan, who is a cool dude with cool shades, who uses his last name as a superhero name because, you know, I guess that's what you do in this era. So Milan's punishment for voicing his doubts gets assigned to stay up all night monitoring their mysterious visitor, who, while still mostly co comatose. Eats him. Yeah, he just, like, absorbs him. And man, this makes me sad, because I hate Holocaust as a villain. I just think he's a jerk and not a very interesting one. But I always liked Milan. He's got this cool Avatar Aang arrow on his forehead that just looks neat in combination with the sunglasses. And his power is so stupid that I have to love it. Like, he basically can project backstory onto computer screens, which is the most comic booky power ever and would actually be awesome to have. But it's clearly just such a, a narrative easy mode. Based on the descriptions of his powers, I'm pretty sure he can also literally skateboard through the internet. You know, he looks a little bit like- was it- was it Fisher Stevens who was the plague in Hackers? I don't remember. Well, anyway. Rusty and Skids aren't really fans either. At this point, the brainwashing that Strife whammied them with is gone, and now what they're mainly left with is a lot of questioning of their judgment for being up here in space with a guy that thinks it's a good idea to crush champagne glasses. They've, yeah, they have had a rough time of it, um, and they continue to have a rough time of it. They don't even get to have, have sexy alone time, which they're about to do, without being interrupted by Scanner, who is, is another, um, acolyte with, with some sort of, um, projecting herself powers, who just pops into their bedroom to summon Rusty to see what's up with Milan, because he's disappeared. This is the worst cult. It is the worst cult. Like, I feel like cult should at least have alcohol that isn't wasted and you get to have a bunch of sex. Like, at the very least, you know? I, I don't think, I don't know if most cults do that. I, and this is not the worst cult, but this is not, this is not a good cult. <laughs> this is not a good cult. 4.5 out of 10 stars. This cult has major structural and leadership issues and is definitely not sustainable. No, well, especially because... You know how when Milan was watching Holocaust, he got disintegrated? Um, well, Rusty goes to, to check on Holocaust, too. And, oh, That's the end of Rusty Collins. Let us pour one out for Rusty Collins. This is a character who first appeared in freaking X-Factor number one years and years ago. He was the first mutant that X-Factor rescued. He had a shitty past. His, he was a Navy soldier whose powers manifested and, like, hurt some lady that was coming on to him against his will. And, like, then he was arrested a whole bunch and chased by the Alliance of Evil and stuff. And no writer could ever really get the hang of him. Like, Skids, his romantic partner, once she showed up in the comics— She's a really interesting character. You have an idea of how she works, but Rusty doesn't really have a very defined personality. And now he's dead, 
And he's specifically now dead to show how badass a villain is. This is the same thing that happened a few years before when all of the Hellions were killed by Trevor fucking Fitzroy to show that he was a badass. And I do not like this trope. Well, especially when it's a shitty villain like Holocaust. He doesn't deserve to have characters with names die to prove a point. He should just, you know, kill a couple NPCs and then get knocked out by Nate Gray or something. Okay, so which would be an appropriate villain to give Rusty Collins, like, a worthy death? I mean, Onslaught. Boo! Boo! But that said, at least Onslaught is, like, you know, a reality-threatening entity of some sort instead of just a shitty skeleton fire guy. Well, Onslaught kills everyone, that's the thing. Um, to, to defeat him, I believe all of the heroes die, and then it's um the... the what the new new universe it's got a name um oh no this was uh heroes Heroes reborn Reborn, yeah and they weren't dead they were just in franklin richard's head obviously you say that like that's not the afterlife yeah or where we all are probably so yeah rusty collins doesn't really ever come back i mean okay he technically comes back in necrotia x where literally every major x character who's ever died briefly comes back but that's it I wonder if he's on Krakoa these days. I hope so. I hope he's on Krakoa not being arrested or in a cult. That would be nice. So I have a question about this because I don't remember Holocaust doing this, basically setting people on fire to absorb their life energy in the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, I I don't think so. And the only thing I can think of is that this is a Holocaust who's completely out of his containment suit. Like before we saw him in this big, transparent, glass-like, set of armor and he was just sort of fire with eyeballs inside it and now what we're seeing is essentially a skeleton that's on fire in fact what we're seeing is almost identical to the design we saw for holocaust way back in the day in strife's strike file when he was introduced like during executioner's song and still wouldn't show up for years ghost rider does it better i mean most people do most things better than holocaust so, I don't know, maybe now that he's not in his containment suit, something-something absorb people, maybe physics works a little differently in Earth-616 than it did in Earth-295, I don't know, like, honestly, I just don't want to think about Holocaust more than I have to. That seems reasonable to me. So, I do have to give Nasiya's a props for Holocaust's initial dialogue, because when he shows up, he's used to Earth-295, and because of that, his, his entrance dialogue reminds me of nothing more than... Evil Kirk from the original series Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror. What kind of a uniform is this? Where's your beer? What's going on? Where's my personal guard? Now, the thing is, Holocaust has seen the Earth 295 versions of some of the characters who are here. For instance, he recognizes Exodus. And there's some slightly silly, almost trues on first-ish confusion based on the fact that Holocaust knows that Exodus follows Magneto, but he thinks of them both as X-Men. Exactly. And so. Exodus is like, no, 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 I'm not an X-Man, I'm with Magneto. And Holocaust says, well, Magneto's an X-Man. And it's, it would be comical if there was less murdering of Rusty Collins. Holocaust and Exodus fight, and the rest of the Acolytes scatter, because basically these are the last two people you want fighting on a structure floating in the vacuum of space. You know, let alone anywhere with other people around them. Colossus wakes up abruptly, he's awakened by the fight, and he starts by bursting out of his pajamas when he goes into his steel form, so... Take a drink. And because Colossus is the nicest acolyte, his first thought is that, you know, Magneto isn't going to be able to get out on his own, so Colossus runs and rescues the still catatonic Magneto. The acolyte Amelia Vote, however, teleports the hell out of there to find help. Now, Amelia Vote we has a bit of a history with the X-Men, specifically with Professor X. They were involved way back in the day until she decided she wanted nothing to do with his forming of the X-Men. She thought that that would create this rift between humans and mutants, that he would basically be stoking the fire of anti-mutant hysteria. And so she just went off on her own. I'm not really clear why she ended up in the Acolytes, given that she wanted to avoid this whole thing, but uh, so she did. Anyway, though, she's going down to Earth to get help. Well, mostly she's going down to Earth to escape. I like the idea that she's in the Acolytes because what she told Xavier was just an excuse and she just didn't want to be with him anymore, but had to think of like a way to break up with him that wasn't just, you know, I don't, I don't like you. She just couldn't stand the sound of the way he chewed his food, but she thought it would hurt his feelings to actually tell him, so she just noped out and said it was a big philosophical difference and then joined a cult. Oh, Miles, there are so many things to dislike about Charles Xavier. <laughs> There's that. 
So Amelia decides, fuck this, I'm splitting. And she teleports out of Avalon and straight into the path of Scott Summers and Jean Grey's car as they drive back from visiting Jean's parents in Uncanny X-Men number 322. And this intersection leaves Amelia on Earth, but somehow teleports the front half of the car, Scott and Jean in it, to Avalon. Whoops. And so all of a sudden, like, they were just driving home on this country road, and all of a sudden they're in the middle of this, like, giant laser fight in space. So, if you have ever seen the Community episode Remedial Chaos Theory, then you know what I'm talking about when I say that the last spread of this issue is basically Jean and Scott showing up in Avalon and looking like Troy coming back to the apartment in the universe where Jeff rolled a one. Oh yeah, the one with all the fire. The one with the fire and the troll statue and the gun and all the others. The one that turns into the darkest timeline. Well, before we head back to space, we do have a little bit else happening in this issue. Okay, so back on Earth, things are also not great. A mutant group has basically committed and claimed responsibility for a mass murder in New York City. That's Gene Nation, we'll be following them in Uncanny. And the Juggernaut has wrecked large chunks of Hoboken before being apparently subdued by Beast, Bishop, and Psylocke. It's more complicated than it appears in this issue. It's actually Onslaught, but we don't know that looking at this, or we're not supposed to know that. So uh, we'll get to that in the next Uncanny X-Men episode. In Key West, Iceman is following Rogue, who, as you may recall, left the X-Men after kissing Gambit at the end of the world, leaving him comatose and having absorbed some of his memories. And learn some things that she doesn't really quite know how to cope with knowing. She's breaking into a house by charging a card to bypass the door, and she's wearing a trench coat. Initially, it actually looks like Gambit. And it's both really sad and also kind of hilarious. Like, clearly, her mind is so mixed up with his, and we know how traumatic that is for her when that happens, that she's acting like him and might think she sort of is him. But at the same time, I just can't help but hear her say... Wovi, de stealing un bebe. Oh god, do you think her accents become sort of a weird hybrid? Oh yeah, it must be awful. I assume it's just straight incomprehensible at this point. I do love, love the way Smith lays these pages out, though, because like you said, it looks like it's Gambit initially. The silhouettes work really beautifully. And they really convey what they need to, which is that Rogue is, isn't just, you know, doing Gambit things. She's moving like Gambit. Obviously, she's absorbed more than memories here. Yeah, yeah. And so Iceman, who is in this era such a good friend to Rogue, follows her and demands what the hell she's doing. And it's interesting because he's portrayed the way he was in Age of Apocalypse. Like, he's sort of an ice elemental. He's this wispy, spiky snake of ice, which uh, this version of Bobby Drake hasn't really learned to do yet. So, I don't know. Maybe when Bishop uh, got a bunch of memories from his Age of Apocalypse self, one of them was, hey, Iceman can do cool stuff. And Iceman was like, oh man, another person is telling me how to use my powers in ways I never figured out. Oh, I suck. He's been working on it following his confrontation with Emma Frost. That's true. But that takes us to X-Men number 43, Falling from Grace, which as far as I know is not the name of an Iron Maiden song. This issue is written by Fabian Nesieza, penciled by Paul Smith, inked by Matt Ryan and Cam Smith, colored by Kevin Summers and Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So let's start out in space. I love that you can just say that sentence and have it so often be relevant on this show. Scott and Jean are up there, and they unsurprisingly start zapping Acolytes, because they don't know what the hell is going on. They haven't seen this new flying skeleton man, but they know that the Acolytes are kind of jerks. Well, the Acolytes attack them first, because they basically just drove a car into the satellite, or the front half of a car. Yeah. Uh, but their first priority is finding their friends. I mean, they realize very quickly they're on Avalon, and they know that Colossus, and Rusty, and Skids are all up there. Jean makes telepathic contact with Skids very quickly, and learns about Rusty's death and scott and gene really have a history with rusty and skids and all this narration once they helped a boy learn to cope with his mutant powers they watched that boy grow into a man they watched in painful frustration as rusty was incarcerated manipulated and abused by forces beyond their control and they are sick of it And Cyclops just grabs Frenzy by the front of her costume. Because, remember, before she was an acolyte, 
She was a member of the Alliance of Evil, the first of many groups that came after Rusty way back at the beginning of X-Factor. Like, he's furious, and I love that Nicieza remembers this. I love that Nicieza remembers, wait a minute, there are two acolytes that have this, like, totally unfinished business in history and nobody's addressed it. Okay, one of them's dead, but I'm going to address it. I'm gonna miss Nicieza. Yeah, this is later in his run, and as much as we may not love the acolytes, this arc involves some of Nicieza's best integration of history and continuity and all of the stuff that he's really, really brilliant at, taking that early X-Men history, taking sort of the Claremont voice and making them his own, bringing them into current stories, keeping them there and present without demanding that the reader be be incredibly and intricately familiar with them. And again, just, just sort of coming back to that legacy in really good ways. Absolutely, yeah. So the station starts to blow up because there's a fiery skeleton man and freaking Exodus fighting each other with no regard for their surroundings. And the part that Skids is trapped on just starts to plummet to Earth. So that's no good. Cyclops, though, uses his leader voice and says, All right, everybody, we've got to work together if we're going to survive. I know we're enemies, but uh, we're also about to explode in space, so, you know. Let's deal with that stuff. He also points out that Magneto didn't say that the X-Men were the Acolyte's enemies. That was just Fabian Cortez and then Exodus who were saying that, and as the Acolytes have clearly seen, those guys both suck. Excellent point. Colossus does indeed grab Magneto and evacuates after hearing from Professor Xavier, who's doing his best to monitor the situation, that everybody else is evacuating too. And man, Colossus seems so grateful for a competent leader figure to just, like, give him some reasonable instructions after dealing with all of this bullshit on Avalon for so long. Poor Colossus. Like, poor Colossus on every level. He just really wants someone else to be the adult in the room. Right? So... There are Coloss- Colossus and Magneto are off going in their own direction. Scott, Jean, and the Acolytes are heading to the escape pods, but Jean realizes that she's the only one who's going to be able to just jump out into space and save Skids and survive that. And I love that Scott briefly says, no, it's too dangerous, and she's like, Scott, this is the only thing that makes sense, and you know it. We're heroes. We've got this. I love their relationship in this era. I love how much of their relationship and dynamic carries over and has changed and deepened in the aftermath of the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Oh, absolutely. That was such a formative series in so many ways. I mean, they'd been together forever, but remember, in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, they spent 10 years together in that timeline. So uh, 12, as, I believe. No, 12, yeah, you're right. So as long as the relationship has been like in the main timeline, add, add 12 years to that. And the, how they compare will vary wildly from year to year. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Seeing Jean just fly out into space, just wearing her normal civilian clothing, like her parent visiting outfit, and only being protected by this pink telekinetic barrier, like, this is Jean Grey. Jean Grey doesn't need to be super to be badass, that's just who she is. Well, and this is Jean Grey, who doesn't really have distinct civilian and superhero identities at this point. She's got a costume, but she uses the same name in both contexts, and what she does with the X-Men is really, it's her job, it's an extension of who she is. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, we we give her shit for the the name thing sometimes, but it actually fits really well. I think technically she's Phoenix at this point after Rachel Summers gave her back the name, but she never really uses it, so I don't know. Yeah, she gets she gets referred to as Phoenix, but she mostly just goes by her own name in in super contexts. So, unfortunately, the other escape pods have all been destroyed by Holocaust and Exodus's fight because man, fuck those guys. So Cyclops has Unision, or Unision, I, I, know, I don't know how to say it. We know that she's Eunice the Untouchable's daughter based on one of the X-Men novels, so I guess uh, Unision? Anyway, the point is she has force field powers, and so Cyclops, using his strategy brain, asks her to extend that, those force field powers around the wreckage chunk that they and the remaining surviving acolytes are on. And hopefully that's going to get them through the atmosphere. Jean is using a similar strategy with Skids. Jean is using telekinesis to hold the wreckage together while Skids uses her force field to, again, hopefully protect them from re-entry. 
And this scene is genuinely tense. Like, the way it just cuts back and forth and back and forth with these semi-parallel situations, with new things going wrong and complicating the plans, like every single panel, and the heroes and even villains just desperately improvising, like... I knew everyone was basically going to be okay as long as they weren't Rusty Collins or Minor Acolytes, but even so, like, I was in it, even reading this set of issues, you know, for far from the first time. Okay, so we've got one chunk of debris held together by telekinesis, and we've got one chunk of debris held together by force field, and then we have a third chunk of debris held together by sheer drama. And that's the one that Exodus and Holocaust are on. As the narration tells us, one piece held together by the sheer force of hatred between two men who would be gods, is lost to an ocean as deep as their own delusions. You remember that thing we were saying about uh, Nisieza channeling Claremont's voice sometimes? Yeah, that. Man, it's just delightful. It truly is. And the last panels of this issue, the last three fiery panels as Gene and Skids are starting to re-enter the fiery atmosphere. We see Gene concentrating in the first panel, a close-up of her eye in the second panel, white hot silhouettes in the third panel. Those are almost identical, as is the dialogue, to the last three panels of Uncanny X-Men number 100. That was when Jean was burning up in re-entry, piloting the space shuttle back to Earth immediately before she became the Phoenix. So, man, if you have a cliffhanger and you want to compare it to one of the most important X-Men cliffhangers ever, then, uh, yeah, this is how you do it. Even the sound effects are the same. There's, like, this tack, 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 as the radiation and fire and heat and stuff are uh, messing the uh, spacecraft up. Like, it's all just so perfectly parallel, while still being, in its detail, related enough to this story to not feel like it's just a total copy. And, again, Cieza, I'm gonna miss you. How many different satellites has Magneto lost at this point? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so there was the first Asteroid M, and Warlock mm. knocked that one out of the sky, and then right. that was part of the story in uh, X-Men vs. Avengers, that miniseries. Ugh. There was the next Asteroid M, which got blown up at the end of Claremont's final story in Adjectiveless X-Men number 3, and then... Avalon is a repurposed version of Greymalk and Cable's old ship, and it gets blown up here, and that's actually going to end up falling to Earth and later becoming part of the mutant island's nation of Utopia. Uh, so there are three that I can think of. Damn, he goes through space stations like Mark Trail goes through speedboats. <laughs> and that brings us to X-Men number 44, Lost and Found. This is, again, written by Fabian Nassiza, penciled by Paul Smith, inked by Matt Ryan, colored by Kevin Somers and Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Everyone is on Earth now, at least, um, but nobody is happy. Amelia Vogt, after escaping and accidentally teleporting half a car into space, makes it to the X-Mansion, where Professor X is desperately trying to get in touch with Scott and Jean. But something mysterious is blocking his telepathy! We should say this isn't the first thing that's blocked his telepathy during this arc, because Exodus also has some kind of anti-telepathy field in Avalon, or had, um, which Professor X had to force his way through, so he could only, you know, have cursory fleeting contact with his students earlier. But this time, it's Nate Gray. Nate Gray's just fucking everything up just by being on Earth. I feel like I just summed up the entire X-Man series. Okay, so this isn't Onslaught? I kind of assumed that everything that goes wrong in, in this, this era is Onslaught. It's either Onslaught or Nate Gray. Everything. Amelia remains totally underwhelmed by Professor X, by the way, and it's pretty great. Now, fortunately, Bishop and Psylocke manage to track some of the wreckage to Madagascar, where they, they find and rescue Jean and Skids. And Jean's telepathy is also scrambled to the point that her psychic rapport with Scott is gone. So that group is on their own. So Xavier decides, all right, I gotta get through this interference... So here's my plan. Hey, Amelia, I've known the whole time since we met, but I've never said that you're actually in a mist form all the time. So how about you turn me into mist so I'm more like the substance that telepathy is made of and can be better at telepathy? Does this remind you of that one plan to teleport into the psychic plane from the Excalibur miniseries in Age of Apocalypse? Well, she's a teleporter, too. This is... This is very much in line with the Age of Apocalypse trend of every teleporter has way more powers than they know of and just need a pep talk to 
actually activate them. Do you think we might be teleporters and we just have to have somebody encourage us enough for us to be able to teleport? I don't think we live in a universe where that's a narrative um, narrative option. Sorry. And I guess there's also the question of if you teleport, is it actually you that comes out the other side if you're having to be built from the molecules that are over there? And, you know, what really is the self anyway? This is getting complicated. The point is that while Professor Xavier is in mist form, I can only assume he passes by mist form sexy Dracula who's on his way to a date somewhere. Maybe they have a misformed date. No, they don't. Um, this totally doesn't work, by the way. It doesn't help with his telepathy at all. It just makes him exhausted and grumpy. And um, he is completely unable to connect with Scott and some acolytes who are in the desert in Australia. I want to talk about clothing here, because there's some of it going on. There is, yeah, like, the acolytes are all still in their armor, which makes sense, because they just landed, like, an hour ago... Scott, on the other hand, has gone fully, full sexy castaway. Uh, he has no shirt, his hair has, like, tripled in length since the last scene, and he's just wearing ripped-up, really tight jeans. He was wearing jeans before. I don't know where his shirt has gone. It might have burned up in re-entry. Also, again, they've been down here for, like, an hour. He was clean-shaven in space, and now he's got a full-on proto-beard. Like, his facial hair must grow faster than mine, even. Alternately, everyone was perceiving him as clean-shaven because they had to go with de- deal with Jean's parents, but he didn't have time to shave, so he asked her to just use his te- telepathy to make him seem clean-shaven? That actually sounds way easier than shaving. I mean, if I had a telepathic partner, I would absolutely take advantage of that as often as they were willing. I mean, if they were up for that, because it's kind of a stupid use of telepathy, but uh, that, would, that, would, that might also explain the, the hair situation. Okay, so you think Scott's, like, just a total slob all the time, but Jean is embarrassed to be seen with him that way, and so she just makes him look presentable telepathically? No, I I think they were just running really late that day. That's fair. Well, the Acolytes are pretty grumpy about following the X-Men, but Unisione and Frenzy are totally Team Scott. And as Frenzy says... Jerks! That man risked his life for us! When are you going to let up on him? And... The thing is, to be fair to the jerks, they were all kind of in it together. Like, it it wasn't like he was going to extra trouble to to save them and would have been fine otherwise. I mean, he did specifically take charge and make sure that they got to what he hoped was an escape pod, but just turned out to be like a big chunk of metal. Uh, But yeah, Frenzy clearly respects Cyclops here, and in fact... Years later, in an alternate dimension, they're going to be in a romantic relationship, and she will remember that alternate dimension when reality goes back to normal, and that's going to instigate some really interesting character development for Frenzy. I love the way Frenzy is written in that run of, I believe it was X-Men Legacy, and I'm so sad that she gets forgotten so often since then. Yeah, that is an Age of X, which is one of my very, very, very favorite alternate timelines. It's a really interesting arc. I guess we haven't talked much about Frenzy in a long time, so... There's not a lot to describe about her right now. She's not super well-developed. She is one of the sadly few female black super characters in the Marvel Universe at this point. Uh, She has super strength and super durability, and she is often one of the more competent members of the ridiculous teams that she finds herself on. Yeah, she's usually a villain, which is a little frustrating, but also she's pretty much not into the whole hero team thing, which is pretty valid in this universe. Yup. So, anyway... Um, Unision or Unision also points out that with Magneto and Exodus gone and the Acolytes basically done, there's really no reason for them to be enemies. And also, also, Cyclops is the only one of the group with any kind of survival skills, so there's also that. I really like this dynamic. I love awesome leader Cyclops and his band of reluctant former enemies who are like, okay, I guess this guy's gonna help us, and him saying, well, of course I'm going to help you because I'm lawful good Scott Summers, and what else would I do? This is a much, much healthier dynamic than the time that Jean mind-controls Frenzy into joining the X-Men. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Speaking of Frenzy getting a raw deal. Yeah, that's gonna happen much later. So, they, they make it through the desert, they finally make it to the X-Men's old Australia base, from which they can phone home. Incidentally, there, there, there's a red herring here, a lost plot thread, that the town shows signs of recent use. And... That's never developed further. In fact, we are not going to see the Australia base again until more than a decade later. So, Jay, in this issue, we get a lot of Cyclops uh, 
leading the acolytes through the desert, you know, finding water for them, using his survival skills, navigating, keeping them all alive, sending people out on scouting missions. I feel like we get a lot of Scott's leadership skills here, and we get to see that side of him pretty well. But you're the biggest Cyclops fan I know, and at this point you've written Cyclops. What's your take on this as a Cyclops-focused issue? I mean, he's on the cover, so there's that. I, I don't know. I think it's solid. I think that it's much, much too multilaterally focused to really be a centrally Cyclops issue. And honestly, I don't think it really gives us anything that we haven't seen from him before, like including the the sexy castaway outfit. Like there's definitely a shorter shorts version of this from Octopusheim. But what we mostly get, what we get is a much more interesting character piece here is Frenzy, as other characters reacting to him, because he's pretty much a known quantity here. Like we get some some you know narration about how he's he's fucked up about Gene, but he's doing what he does, which is suppress and like focus on the stuff that needs to get done and surviving and getting through this and getting everyone out alive. Um, which again really isn't new character development, um, so much as reinforcement of other stuff. But the ways that the acolytes respond um, are, I think, much, much more interesting. I think, I think he is, he's much more context for their development. He's sort of a foil, yeah. Speaking of X-Men whose names begin with C, Cyclops is, is in, in the Australian desert. Colossus is in Antarctica, and he is rescued by a stranger in fancy armor who is remarkably friendly about knocking him out and dragging him to Magneto's Savage Land Fortress. Unfortunately, Magneto himself is nowhere to be seen. He has fallen away somewhere in the the descent. I think that he gently parachuted down using his majestic mullet, and he's probably fine. We'll, We'll get to him later. I do love, though, that the surviving escape pod, like the only escape pod that wasn't destroyed, was already pre-programmed to go to one of Magneto's other fortresses, in this case, his Antarctic base that we saw in X-Men Unlimited number one. That's a nice little continuity touch there. Makes a ton of sense to me. What's not in good continuity is that Colossus is in his X-Men uniform for some reason. It makes no sense that he would have time to change into that, and it also makes no sense that he would wear it at this point. Maybe Magneto had it stashed in the escape. Pod? I mean, I guess if Colossus was going to defect to rejoin the X-Men, it would be very convenient for him to have his X-Men uniform in the escape pod. Yeah, I mean, he could have brought it with him. He could have been wearing it under his clothes if he was thinking of leaving. I don't know, man. I think it might just be an artistic fuck-up. Eh. Unstable molecules. There we go. Now... When Colossus comes to at the Magneto base, he recognizes his captor slash savior as... Callisto! And she responds... Give or take a decade, yep, it's me. Now, since I saved your life, Pete, what say you and the X-Men help me save the world? In X-Men Prime, we saw a little girl named Sarah who had aged roughly, I don't know, ten years into a woman named Marrow. She was also one of the Morlocks, along with Callisto, who were presumably killed by Mikhail Rasputin, but apparently weren't. So, yeah, this is going to lead into the whole Gene Nation storyline. We're going to talk a lot about that going forward. But I am glad to see Callisto and her extremely improbable outfits show up again. Me too, and I'm really glad to see Callisto and Colossus's relationship show up again. Right, because there was a long period, which did, to be fair, involve some uh, facial reconstruction and memory loss, but where they were romantic partners, and they've always had a really interesting dynamic. You know, and I think that's the case with a lot of Colossus's most interesting relationships, is they're with people who are nothing like he is. I'm thinking Callisto, I'm thinking definitely Domino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the fall of Avalon. The Acolytes are not really much of a going concern at this point. There's going to be some more Magneto stuff and, you know, Joseph, the guy we've talked about a couple times recently, who kind of is Magneto and kind of isn't. And the Acolytes will be involved in that, but in many ways, this is the last really big Acolyte story. Well, until Magneto takes over a country. No, I'm going to say this is the last really big Acolyte story, because that's not so much about them. Yeah, that's that's a very, very different situation and a different scale. And... Not really the same kind of cult of Magneto situation that we've got here. So as a story to get back into the main continuity, I really like this one. It starts with a bang, a lot of stuff happens, there's some changes to the status quo, but not ones that are so radical we don't recognize the setting anymore. And 
honestly, if it weren't for the villain being Holocaust and Holocaust being shown to be badass by killing poor, poor Rusty Collins, I wouldn't really have any complaints. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I have, again, I have trouble getting into the Acolyte stuff, but I think it's a fairly well-managed story. We also very much approve of our listeners, and as far as I know, none of them killed Rusty Collins, and they've got questions. Theodore asks via email, I'm struggling with figuring out characters' ages via their appearance. Liana looks as old as Kitty, but she acts a lot younger, and from what I remember of your coverage, she's supposed to be, what, six here? Eight? Are there any visual cues I can look for to tell characters' ages, or do I have to rely on context clues? And this is, of course, referring to Ilyana's appearance in Generation Next in the Age of Apocalypse. Oh, Theodore, I am, I am so sorry for what I am about to tell you, which is, you can rely on nothing here. You can rely on canonical specific statements of characters' ages in dialogue or narration in the specific panel and maybe issue in which those appear. And that's about it. You cannot expect their ages to advance at, at normal levels. You can't really depend on context cues, because how aware writers and editors are of the characters' ages varies, and likewise artists. Appearance, however, is probably the least reliable means of figuring this out, and that is because basically comics characters' ages and, and visual portrayals function like a gravity well. Like, however old they are, they gradually seep towards looking like they're in their early 20s. Young characters, teenagers get aged up, older characters get aged down, and so you get this just sort of generically early adulthood appearance for everybody, regardless the age they're supposed to be. And I think this is extra complicated with a character like Ileana Rasputin, because I can't imagine that every artist that draws her is going to have taken the time to figure out her ridiculously complicated continuity, which has to do with time travel de-aging and re-aging. And so the more you get errors like that, where Ileana's drawn as older or younger than she should be, the more the problem happens again, because then in the future, when artists reference art of Liana from the past, they're often referencing art of her that was done wrong in the first place due to her continuity being complicated. However, in Age of Apocalypse, Kitty is definitely older than she is in the regular timeline. That's something we see with a few characters with, with, with different ages. And I think to an extent you just have to take with a grain of salt across timelines that character ages don't necessarily match up. Individual character timelines don't necessarily match up. So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, how do Dazzler's powers work? They convert sound into light, right? Does that mean she can no longer hear the sound? How do they do damage? You are correct. Dazzler's powers convert sound into light. But from what I can tell, usually that conversion is incredibly efficient. So even when she absorbs a whole bunch of sounds to do a whole bunch of light, there's not really a noticeable drop in the sound around her, be it music or whatever. There is one example that is forever going to be stuck in my head, and unfortunately I can't remember where it's from. I feel like it might be from Dazzler the movie, but I might be getting that totally wrong. Maybe it's an issue of X-Men. But I remember a specific panel where she's using her powers so much harder than she ever has because her opponents are so dangerous and the situation is so desperate that she actually absorbs all of the sound from the area. There are people talking and screaming and all of their speech bubbles. The text just fades out into being blank as everything goes white with light. That definitely happens in Dazzler the movie. It's a really, really cool scene. But writers mostly forget about that part, so even when she's channeling her powers really, really hard, nobody mentions, hey, everything is quiet, very often. As for how she uses that to damage people, well, let's just quote the Marvel database on this one. Dazzler possesses a body-wide energy field that controls the energy levels of the outer electron shells in her body in such a way as to cause the cascaded release of photons. In effect, this field is lasing with the apparent efficiency of a laser 99.9%. The released energy is far greater than the incoming kinetic energy and therefore must involve an outside energy source, the nature of which is unknown. So basically, she shoots lasers. Also, she shoots concussive photon blasts. Let's just keep those that simple and say that they're kind of lasers. Although I guess if we say that those are lasers, then we say that Cyclops' optic blasts are lasers, and we can't do that. Um, but the overall important thing is to repeat to yourself that it's just a show and you should really just relax. Man, this is where I realized that we should have been calling Avalon the Satellite of Love. Oh, man. It's the Satellite of Cult.
That's much less exciting. It's not the satellite of love, because every time Skids and Rusty happened, wanted to get lucky, then some hologram lady would show up and say that one of them had to check on a skeleton. It, it's a satellite of a lot of things, but fortunately now it's gone, so we don't actually have to worry about what to call it anymore. We, meanwhile, are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let us go once more unto the angry Claremontian narrator. What have you done with your life, Trav Williams, to end up here, now, without hope, without a plan? At least you're also without Andrew Youngson, who would definitely only make a hopeless situation worse. I mean, assuming that's even possible. And the microphone now passes over to, uh, Frenzy. Oh, for the love of... I thought we were done with this. Mary C. and I were the only remotely competent members of the Alliance of Evil back when we worked for the Owl. I mean, for Apocalypse. Mary, do you remember our old teammate Tower? His only skill was getting big enough that he caused more damage when he inevitably got knocked on his ass by X-Factor. It was embarrassing to be around. So we move on from that train wreck and join the Acolytes. First off, much better name. And second, team members who actually seem respectable. Amelia Vote, Milan, Jim Hart, great! But then Exodus takes over and gets our space station blown up for basically no reason, and suddenly I'd settle for the owl again. I mean, apocalypse. And now we're sweating through our acolyte uniforms in this stupid desert. And know what? The hell with this. Mary, Jim, let's ditch. Ugh, maybe the nasty boys are hiring. They've gotta be better than this. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's music at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, writer, editor, and critic Laura Hudson joins us as we take a step back from continuity to talk about some of the current conversations in the comics industry. Surrounding harassment, abuse, and loving books by creators you, well, don't. They had previously been mind-controlled by... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> X-Men. Just... <laughs> we should probably leave this part in the episode. No, no, no but it could be an outtake. <laughs> just, sometimes it just really hits me how fucking stupid all of this is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, when you're ready... <laughs>